2: I'm Sasha Coca. it's the California Report magazine. Today, we're gonna rewind back in time to the late 80s and early 90s, to a time when we were gripped by another deadly virus, HIV. In San Francisco, at the height of the AIDS crisis, close to half of the city's gay men were dying. And for some, marijuana helped ease their pain helped those feelings of anxiety. But back then, pot, either medicinal or recreational, wasn't legal. State politicians were cracking down on it.
3: At the expense of people with HIV.
2: This week, we're devoting our whole show to the true story of how a San Francisco pastor changed the definition of communion and committed felonies to comfort his flock.
3: I took a risk, I used my body, I acted on a belief that was motivated by my desire to provide healing and comfort for my friends. And I didn't know what else to do that I could do, but this was something I could do. And I did it.
2: We're bringing you a documentary from KQED's Christopher Beale. He first produced it for his podcast called Stereotypes, Straight Talk from Queer Voices. And just a heads up, in this story you're going to hear frank discussions of death, religion, marijuana, and drugs. Here's Christopher.
0: Cities all across America have gay neighborhoods. I like to call them gayberhoods. And in San Francisco, ours is called the Castro. I'm a few blocks away from the Rainbow Crosswalk and the gay bars of the Castro, here on Eureka Street. I'm surrounded by row houses and fourplexes. This block is mostly residential and quiet. The uniformity is only broken up by this one abandoned building. It's a church with a lavender sign that says, a house of prayer for all people. This was the home of the Castro's gay church, where LGBTQIA people came to celebrate their faith and pray for hope.
3: It was this amazing energy place.
0: The man at the pulpit in the 80s and 90s was a gay pastor
3: named Jim Matulski. I did always love going to church. It was a place that it was quiet, it was pretty, people were nice to each other.
0: (laughs) Jim grew up in a little town northwest of Detroit called Royal Oak, Michigan.
3: My family life was rather unhappy, and it was a respite, frankly, and I looked forward to it every week. Can you recall the first
0: time you actually
3: felt the presence of God? It definitely happened for me during music in church. My early survival skill in church was don't listen if they're talking, just pay attention when they're singing. I don't think I've ever met a piece of music I didn't like, and especially in a religious setting. It wasn't until later that I came to understand that you could actually use the pulpit part for something positive or useful. That didn't come till college. Jim went to Columbia. It was a men's college at that time in New York City. So who do you think goes to a men's college in New York in the 70s? Gay guys. Did that ring out to be true? It turned out to be totally true.
0: Jim had been out of the closet since high school, so he filled his time in New York with what you might expect. He
3: also discovered a love for queer activism. I was a political gay, and I was very involved in gay politics. And by politics, I mean in the streets politics. And my grades reflected it, by the way. Uh, I was a terrible student. I found myself in those activities. I found my voice. I found my vocation. I found my sense of self, my identity. I found my friends. I found my sexuality. The people you protested with. In addition to being friends, we were all lovers. An army of lovers cannot be defeated, which was a classical phrase, but we meant it. I probably had sexual adventures every day from the time I was 18 until I was 25 with different people. <laughs> and. I wasn't particularly more promiscuous than anyone in my peer group. And I know these numbers are horrifying to the post-AIDS person. By 1979,
0: Jim had dropped out of college.
3: This was not unusual in my class, as it
0: turns out. And it was around this time that Jim discovered a gay church in Greenwich Village. The MCC, or Metropolitan Community Church, had been founded just a year earlier on the West Coast by this gay reverend named Troy Perry. Troy Perry. The denomination was hardly even that at this stage,
3: but it was designed by gay Christians for gay Christians. It was church, not like church. We were anti-church. We were deconstructing Christianity church. We were out in the streets protesting church. We were wear T-shirts, not wear vestments church. We wore ragged jeans and pink triangles on our shirts church. And it was magical. One day, Jim had this kind of epiphany it didn't occur to me that you could be gay and be a priest. Now this was hilarious to the gay priests that I met eventually. Jim went back to school to become a pastor. And after serving at the
0: MCC in New York for a few years, he got his first senior pastor job
3: offer in San Francisco. I got off the plane just to interview even and was like, it's beautiful here. It's so much lighter here. It's so much brighter. The quality of the sun was something I noticed. And people are happier here. And they're friendlier. You know, New York, they'll cut you dead if you say hello or smile or something, you know. And the Castro was, hi, hi. So Jim, now in his
0: 20s, packed up and moved to San Francisco. Gay heaven.
3: It was so gay gay, gay, gay. We had a gay bank. Gay, gay, gay. We had a gay church. Gay, gay, gay. Gay drugstore. We had a gay supermarket. You know, everything was gay, gay, gay. There was a protest every Friday night, which turned into a dance party. You know, we got our news from the BAR. The Bay
0: Area reporter still active in San Francisco today.
3: And we did read the Chronicle and the Examiner, but mostly to get the latest installment of the Armistead Maupin column. You
0: might know that column. It spawned several books and a few TV
3: series. It's called Tales of the City. That was the mood and that was the feel. That was the San Francisco I came to. And it was a great community in the midst of a terrible tragedy unfolding. And that was evident, but still, it was a cool place to be. It was still happy. Gay, gay,
2: gay.
0: Jim began hosting Sunday services at the Little Metropolitan Community Church on Eureka Street in 1986, and immediately the congregation began to grow. The community was in need, and eventually the church added a second and then a third service to accommodate all of the people. A lot of those parishioners were visibly dying of AIDS, and they were on delicately timed medications.
3: They had to take it every four hours. And people had timers. Like if you were in church, you'd hear ding, 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 all the time. Or anywhere, if you're in a restaurant, anywhere, you kept always heard the ding, ding, go off. But it became a sound like crickets all the time chirping, which is a weird soundtrack in the background.
0: Over the next few years, the MCC and the Castro became the de facto LGBTQIA community center. The doors were pretty much always open church services, community meetings, weddings, and an ever-increasing
3: number of funerals took place there. I just was not equipped for the sheer numbers of it. Now, the part of me that is good in crises just dug right in and did it. And I found that I'll listen to anybody and nothing freaks me out. And in fact, I'm good at going with someone to a difficult topic. I could be with dying people. After a while,
0: hospital visits just became a normal part of the week. The people
3: that I saw were emaciated. They were dying and in great pain, and in some instances, barely able to talk. Each and every person I talked to was convinced they had brought this on themselves, they were worried about going to hell, Many of them were experiencing rejection from friends, family, and loved ones, including gay friends. In 1988,
0: the LA Times wrote that about 4% of San Francisco's population, including an astonishing half of the city's estimated 60,000 plus gay men, had AIDS. Without an effective cure, most of these men would die within the next 10 years.
3: Here's one I remember, this guy who said, will you hold my hand and pray with me? Which, of course, I did. And he said that the only person who would hold his hand and pray with him was one of the nurses on the night shift, who always prayed that he would be delivered of his sin of homosexuality before he died. She wanted him to be saved. And he was so alone there. That's what really shook me to my core. This is why we have a gay church. This is why we do this, because people should not have to be in this circumstance. And the only person who will pray with them is someone who also wants them to be cured of homosexuality. That made me angry. That's how I became an activist, the anger part. It wasn't the sad part that became the activist. It was the angry part.
0: Jim's work was taking a physical and emotional toll on him. He gained 80 pounds and then started working out furiously to lose it.
3: He got a therapist. There was a group of us who connected that summer. He made some new friends and started going out more. We used to call ourselves class of 95. We might have known each other from around. I mean, Castro's a small town. We found ourselves dancing on Sunday nights at the Pleasure Dome. And most of us had been pretty good boys until then. After a while, you know, a lot of people had slept with a lot of people. And I don't mean that in a disdainful way. I mean that respectfully. It was part of how we connected. It was part of how we were with each other.
0: By the time anyone realized AIDS was sexually transmitted, the damage was widespread. The disease could strike a fit,
3: healthy, young guy, and he'd be dead in months our moods became darker, our hope dissipated, and I became kind of nihilistic. My capacity to sustain an interior sense of self-preservation waned. And I became less protective of my own sexual behavior. I didn't care, I didn't care. We felt like our world was dying. And this is impossible to communicate to people who weren't there. But you asked that I'm gonna tell you. We just didn't care. We did care about our friends. We did care about those who were dying. We didn't remember what it meant to care anymore, necessarily about not becoming part of this. And that was the summer we discovered, separately, individually, that we were no longer HIV negative. And we started doing the things that good boys never did. Dancing all night, doing recreational drugs that were related to that activity, using our bodies. We felt like we belonged. We were in something together. And we had regrets, but we weren't gonna just give up on our lives either. That's the truth. I'm telling you the truth because I think my story is different from others, but my story is not unusual.
0: Today, there are medications that make it possible to live with HIV, but in 1995, everything that seemed to work was experimental. Jim says he tried a drug called Crixivan
3: 36 pills a day.
0: 36?
3: Yeah. Big pills.
0: Can I ask you to compare that to your pill regimen for HIV
3: today? My, uh, for just, just treating HIV one.
0: In the 90s, those early medications managed to prolong lives, but they could make AIDS patients desperately ill. Those patients quickly discovered that cannabis or marijuana
3: actually helped with the symptoms. It did two things. One, it suppressed nausea. So the people would eat, and they wouldn't eat otherwise, because they you know, just felt sick all the time. And the other thing is, it took the pain away, or enough away. In the
0: 80s and 90s, San Francisco was pretty progressive on marijuana when compared to the rest of the country, even the rest of the state. And that had a lot to do with the city's dying gay population. Medical marijuana clubs, kind of the 90s equivalent of a dispensary, were where patients got their pot. The government looked the other way and everything was fine. That is until politicians got involved.
3: Dan Lundgren, who was attorney general, saw this as an issue that he thought could be a popular enforcement issue as a law and order guy. And without consulting with city officials exercised his authority as a state official, probably with the support of the federal government, to one day, overnight, crack down on and close, without warning, all of the marijuana outlets and distributors in San Francisco at the expense of people with HIV.
0: One day, a friend named Alan White
3: approached Jim. He was a character. There's no other word for it. But he was the journalist of the gay community in the... 70s, 80s, 90s.
0: White had been talking with a few politicians and had an idea of how to help those AIDS patients get their much-needed medication.
3: They wondered, who could they get to distribute marijuana that the government would think twice about arresting? The risk was high, because at that time, the government could seize your asset. They came to me, though, and said, we want you to do a public distribution of marijuana from the church building to people with HIV. So it was a little loosey-goosey, but in a general way, I understood what was at stake. Jim thought about it for a bit and then reached out to his friend Phyllis Nelson. She shared my heart for social justice, and also she kind of ran the church administratively. She came to the church for a variety of reasons. She and her husband, they wanted a place where he could come out. We didn't know he was gay at first. Also, they had a gay son who had AIDS. So they needed a community of support.
0: Their son's name was Glenn. Jim officiated his wedding to a man named
3: Rob. Then, sadly, Glenn dies. Then Rob dies. And then Phyllis and I are through all this together. We just were standing outside. I still remember this this Saturday afternoon after Rob's funeral. Sometimes you don't need words. But we were definitely bonded.
0: After being approached by Alan White about distributing medical marijuana at church, Jim called Phyllis and said,
3: It's not without risks, and I don't know if I should or not. And she said to me, of course you will, and I'll stand right next to you if you do it. Because how can you not? And I knew what she was referring to that moment when we had stood outside as the sunset, just sort of being in that kind of painful silence. After... Her son and son-in-law had died. This was after my own diagnosis. This was a change in me. Facing my own mortality made me realize, we're only here as long as we're here. What are you being so cautious about? My ministry changed right after that.
0: Do you have a lighter? Because yes. I don't know if I have one. In your experience, when someone experiencing HIV or AIDS would smoke a joint, what do you think was happening for those AIDS patients that was so medically
3: necessary? AIDS is in itself a disease, right? It's a susceptibility to any number of physical symptoms, including those which are painful to the stomach or to your skin or other kinds of nerve damage. I saw this happen, they would actually feel pain relief and their whole body would just, uh, you know. Then it also, and this is, something, this is something I have experienced, the stress around worrying about mortality or about your circumstances and whether or not you're gonna get everything done that you wanna get done while you still can do it, and things like that, become so overwhelming that it's all you can think about. Uh, just a, a period of release from that. And fortunately with this, it's, it'll last for half an hour, an hour or whatever. Not all day, not all night, but sometimes the freedom from the omnipresent anxiety is important. It's welcome.
0: All right, it's the summer of 1996, and Jim is getting ready to begin giving out pot to AIDS patients in church. We had rules, no
3: money could be exchanged. Pot had to be donated, people had to provide a note. We did have security, and we were promised by the supervisors and the health department that the city would protect us as much as they could. There would be no city prosecution and they would try to protect us from any state or federal prosecution. So they couldn't guarantee it wouldn't happen.
0: That first Sunday, it seemed like everybody was watching.
3: The media was there in the back row. I preached on if you want to have an increase in your spiritual growth or spiritual life act on your conscience i took a risk i used my body i acted on a belief that was motivated by my desire to provide healing and comfort for my friends and i didn't know what else to do that i could do but this was something i could do and i did it when you talk about when did you experience god i did then And the risk was real, and the spiritual intensity was real, and the tangible relief for the people who, who used it was real. And here's what Phyllis said that I still remember. She said, if the Attorney General had to spend a whole morning trying to get his son to eat a half a bowl of cereal like I did, he would understand what we're doing right now.
0: After church, patients came forward and presented their notes and left with a small baggie of marijuana. And that first Sunday, the police and officials, they all stayed away. In fact, the entire length of the ministry, there were no
3: arrests and no harassment. I swear angels protected us. I still believe that. And many people were praying for us. They could have arrested us. They could have. But they didn't. And whether it was optics or whether it was, I think that a lot of people knew we were doing the right thing. This was in the summer. And by the fall, there was a proposition on the state ballot.
0: Proposition 215, which permitted the use of medical cannabis in California, was passed by voters on November 5th, 1996.
3: Yep. And then we stopped.
0: How many people would you say you helped with that ministry?
3: Oh, a couple thousand probably. Not all of them gay or people with AIDS, but many of them were, but other people too. And that was interesting to me that there was this whole other kind of community that benefited from the gay community's model of using community organizing around HIV to achieve a shift in policy around health. It's my regret that we did all that activism on healthcare, on AIDS healthcare, on AIDS care in the 80s and 90s, and somehow did not end up with universal healthcare. Crazy.
0: Gotta find that mask. A few months ago, I took Jim back to Eureka Street. And while the caretaker unlocked the now abandoned church, Jim walked down the sidewalk, examining these memorial plaques honoring church members and other allies in the community, many of whom have died. You read some of them too?
3: Yeah, maybe in a minute. I remember all these people. Uh good lord. School with Bill Lowell of Gavin Newsom who started performing weddings before it was legal. (laughs) People whose weddings and funerals I did.
0: There's your name on this plaque of senior pastors.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I still rode that horse longer than anybody else. So can we go in? Yes, let me get the other door open.
0: Jim left the Metropolitan Community Church in the Castro in 2000 and hasn't been back in the church in over a decade.
3: So, of course, in my mind, (laughs) this was the size of Grace Cathedral, but I can see now it really isn't very big, is it? Uh, But it seemed bigger. And I will say we... Used every square inch of it. a Sunday night in the Castro was the thing. Seven o'clock, this room filled and sometimes filled early. and it was all about singing. We sang gospel music. Sometimes for two hours, two and a half hours, it started, and it built. And you know, there was a sermon and there was a communion, and then it just kept going. We are trying to end the service. people <laughs> wouldn't stop, because it was this big release of energy that we had to have. know um, <laughs> to see it now, you can't tell maybe, but um, it was this amazing energy place.
0: I asked Jim what he learned from his time as the marijuana minister
3: let your acts of love guide you even if it means great risk the greater the love the greater the risk and you will never regret acts of great love
2: That was Christopher Beale. He's a reporter and producer at KQED, and he also hosts Stereotypes, the podcast where he first aired this documentary. Special thanks to Reverend Jim Mitolsky, Todd and Miguel Atkins-Whitley, The Castro Patrol, Kiana Moradam, and Josh Taylor. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mao Leon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report Magazine Your State, Your Stories.